Well, good morning. I was going to say you may be seated, but you are seated. So, good job. All right, well, welcome to 116 Bible Church. I'm pretty sure I know almost every face in here. Um, if you don't know me, I'm Sean. I'm the associate pastor here. And we are blessed beyond belief to be able to worship and serve the one true living God with you this morning. If you have your Bible, please do open it um, to the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to continue our trek through 1 Samuel. Um, if you have your physical copy, wonderful. If you have a copy on your digital device, wonderful. Um, we'll be in 1 Samuel, chap- 1 Samuel chapter 16. And I'm so sorry. We're going to try to get through 13 verses today. I think we can do it. We might have to move at a pretty good clip, but I think we can do it. So 1 Samuel chapter 16, beginning in verse 1, and we'll be reading through verse 13. If you have found it and you are able, I do ask that you would please stand in the honor of the reading of God's word. One final time, that is 1 Samuel chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. And the word of God says, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. And Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. But the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one I name to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? And he said, Peaceably I have come. To sacrifice to the Lord, sanctify yourselves, and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. So it was when they came that he looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. And Samuel said to Jesse, Are all the young men here? Then he said, There remains yet the youngest, and there he is, keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, Send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. So he sent and brought him in. Now he was ready with bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. 
And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel arose and went to Ramoth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have been blessed. Incredibly, indescribably, unimaginably, to read your word. Father, during our time this morning, we pray that your spirit would lead us as we seek to go through your word and understand it, that we may be holy as you are holy. This is our prayer, Lord. We do not want to understand according to our own understanding. Lord, instead we seek to understand by the power and the presence of your Spirit upon your people. So give us that understanding. Show us the Lord Jesus Christ in your word today. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Okay, real quick, let's go ahead and do a little bit of a recap of some of what's happened just prior to this passage, and we will dive right in. We're going to do our passage before us today. So just before this, uh, we see Saul, um, and we see Saul um, not doing too great, right? Um, he's, he's not making the best decisions. He is not, uh, he's not doing wonderfully as the king of Israel. Uh, he is, um, he's doing some, or did some wonderful things as a military leader, which is what the people asked for. Um, but in leading the people in holiness and in truth and, and in justice, he's not doing very well. Uh, he is, he leaves a lot to the imagination. Um, and we see a direct disobedience to the Lord uh, in the chapter just prior to this in chapter 15 and we see where um, even though Samuel has been ordered to wipe out uh, the entire enemy wipe them all out get rid of them because the Lord had promised previously that he would blot out the Amalekites from under the sun right and so he instructs Saul to do that, but Saul doesn't do that. He leaves King Agag alive, he leaves some of the flock and the herds alive, and um, when God had said destroy everything. Uh, and then Samuel shows up, and as we saw last week, uh, Saul rushes out to meet Samuel, and uh, immediately, first words out of his mouth, I've done all that the Lord has commanded and, um, well, no, he didn't. Uh, he did not do all that the Lord had commanded. In fact, he had done the opposite of what the Lord had commanded him to do. And uh, Samuel informs him that uh, he, he had disobeyed the Lord. And Saul, who seems to be repenting and remorseful in tears, um, begs Samuel to bless him. And when Samuel turns to walk away, he even reaches out and grabs his robe and rips some of it off. And Samuel 
stops and he turns around and he tells Saul that the Lord will rip the kingdom from his hands and give it to another, to his neighbor, to a man who is better than Saul. Now that's a shot to the old pride. That's not going to make you feel great. Um, and then Samuel leaves and Saul and Samuel never see each other again. And that's how verse or chapter 15 ends. That's kind of uh, that's kind of dark, kind of depressing, kind of sad. Um, it's a very low note, or seemingly. And then we get to our passage here in chapter 16. So, without further ado, let's dive into this passage God has set before us today. Verse 1, Now the Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? So Samuel, after having after this encounter with Saul, leaves, and rather than going about the work that God has for him to do, appears to just be mourning. He appears to be mourning in a, in a manner similar to how, at this time, people would mourn the death of somebody. So just long periods of, of, of mourning um, and just grieving over what was lost. And in a real way, there was kind of a death, wasn't there? It was the death of this king, um, this king's reign, um, that though he was still alive, God had removed the right to rule from him. And so Samuel is, is mourning this, and there's this, if you read the whole the whole thing, like the, you remember the whole encounter, like Samuel, the people asked for this king, not Samuel. Samuel told him, "No, you you don't want a king because this is what's going to happen. You know that you know this is what's going to happen. Moses said this is what's going to happen, and but even in that time, it appears that maybe there was kind of a." Maybe they had grown close together. Maybe there was kind of an emotional attachment. Maybe a type of fondness for Saul, who, though obviously very flawed. Um, maybe Samuel had, had kind of a soft spot for him because he kind of had to bring him into the kingship, right? Um, with three ordinations and with there's maybe even some instruction going on there and how to lead. Um, but... We see Samuel just mourning and grieving his loss. And right out of the gate, I mean, not even halfway through verse 1, that gets me thinking, how often, how much time do I waste mourning things that God told me wasn't going to be good for me anyways? Mourning the loss of things that really I have no business wanting Desiring in my life to be with. How often? How many? How many relationships with people who clearly have no interest in God or the things of God and do nothing but cause me trouble and vex me and and try to tear down my own faith. And then when they finally choose to leave, how much time do I waste mourning over that? I'm not saying there shouldn't be a time, a brief time of mourning. Because sure, there was a relationship there that is now gone. That's sad. 
but to wallow in that and to sit in that and to continue in that for days on end and to not get up, wash your face, brush off your garments and continue with the work that the Lord has for us. That's sin. That's sin. Wallowing in that grief and that sorrow is sin. Wallowing in that in the loss of that relationship. Wallowing in the loss of something that maybe seemed like a blessing at the time but like the rain of Saul quickly turned into a curse. That's sin. Refusing to get up and to go about and to continue the work that the Lord has set before his people, has set before me personally as an individual, that's sin. That's sin. Again, that's not to say there isn't a place for mourning. There's absolutely a place for mourning. But the Christian life is a life of hope. We don't stay in the mourning. We don't stay in the grief. We don't stay in the sorrow. Because our hope, our Christ, has risen. And he is coming again to make all things right. So we don't stay in that mire. We don't stay in that muck. We don't sit there pondering, what if? Or if only. We get up. We wash our face. We brush off our clothes. And we go. And we work. The Lord continues. Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite. For I have provided myself a king among his sons. So what was that work that God had set before Samuel? It was anointing the next king. It was only half the job had been done. The kingship had been ripped from the hands of Saul and from his dynasty. And God is saying, I have given it over to another. And instead of going about that work, to go, to go and find this individual and to anoint him, in the name of the Lord, Samuel wallowed in his misery. God instructs him, fill your horn with oil and go. Go now. Go to Bethlehem. Go to the house of Jesse. Because among his sons is my king. This is a stark contrast between how Saul was referred to. Saul was referred to as their king. God is saying, they had their king. And we saw how that worked out. Now get up and go and find my king and anoint him. For I've provided myself a king among his sons. This isn't the king that the people asked for. This isn't the king that we saw prior to the anointing of Saul where they said, give us the king like the other nations have. The subtext being the king who leads us into battle, 
The king who is, stands head and shoulders above everyone else. The king who looks good in that armor. The king who makes us want to follow him because his appearance is so striking and inspirational. They had that king. And it did not work out. So God instead provided for himself a king among the sons of Jesse. Now Bethlehem was a rinky town. It was a little place in the middle of nowhere, about 10 miles south-ish from Ramah, where Samuel was. And so there's 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 a little bit of the echo, right, of um, the beginning of the ministry of Jesus when the uh, when the apostles are being called and Andrew comes and he says, "Hey, come, come, come meet this, come meet this guy who's he's got to be he's got to be the Christ. He's got to be sent of God. He's got to be something." And the response is. Anything going to come out of Nazareth? We see a little bit of an echo of this here. Can anything good really come out of Bethlehem? In this rinky-dink town? Uh, so there, there's a little bit of similarity here we see where Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin, the smallest tribe. So there may have been a little bit of somewhat of that. And then here we see a king being called from the smallest town from the tribe of Judah. But the difference is that in Genesis, before his passing, Jacob decreed, prophesied, that the scepter, the kingly reign, would come from the tribe of Judah. So, Samuel, who's receiving this information, he's a little bit weary. And we see that in verse 2. How can I go? If Saul hears it, he will kill me. How did chapter 15 end? The last words Samuel said to Saul, The Lord has ripped the kingdom from your hand and given it to your neighbor who is better than you. And that was obviously true in a spiritual sense, but politically speaking, Saul was still king. And Saul probably wouldn't have been too happy hearing that Samuel was going out to anoint the next king who wasn't from Saul's line. If we uh, we got to read this in context clearly, Saul is not in a position where he is yielding to the leading and the guidance of the Lord. But he instead wants what he wants when he wants it, and that is now. So... Saul, so Samuel's response is, how can I go? Saul's going to kill me. Saul's going to find out, and he's going to kill me. How's Saul going to find out? Well, because on the path between Ramah, where Samuel is, and Bethlehem, where David is, there's a little town called Gibeah. That's the town of Saul. He's going to pass right through Saul's territory. Saul's home base to get to Bethlehem and to anoint this king. So yeah, there was a better than not chance that Saul was going to find out. 
The Lord's response of Saul, uh, but the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. First things first, this is not a lie. This is a command. This is a command from the Lord to say, Take a heifer with you, and part of the anointing will be the sacrifice. Just as Saul was first anointed at a sacrificial feast, so David will be first anointed at a sacrificial feast. And we see here, the Lord is instructing Samuel to take the heifer with him to actually make the sacrifice. He's not saying, say you're going to sacrifice, but don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. He's saying, take the heifer with you to actually make the sacrifice. This isn't a lie. He's not being instructed to lie. He is instead. Instead, I think what we're seeing here is a little bit of irony. Because in chapter 15, when Saul had been instructed to wipe everything out, and instead, he did not. And Samuel confronts him about it. His response is, well, we kept the best to sacrifice to the Lord. So I think what we're seeing here is a little bit of that irony coming back coming back to hurt Saul is that whereas Saul disobeyed under the guise of sacrificing to the Lord, Samuel is now obeying in, in accordance with sacrificing to the Lord. We're seeing here this uh, that God is not without a sense of humor. That God and our sins definitely will find us out. So Samuel takes the heifer with him, the cow, and he goes on his way. Or um, and he goes on his way. And the Lord says, um, "Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. You shall anoint for me the one that I made you." So part of this whole sacrifice thing is going to be the anointing of the king, the anointing of the next king, and that information is being withheld from Saul. Because he does not deserve that information. That information is not, he is not worthy of that information. So he has been instructed to go to prepare a sacrifice, or to take with him that which is necessary to prepare the sacrifice, and to go and to do, uh, and to commit the sacrifice, and to invite the family that this king will be from to the sacrifice. What we're seeing here is an example of God protecting his messenger. God protecting those whom he sends out. We're seeing God intervening in the lives of his people, those who he sends out in order to keep them safe until the time he has appointed for them to leave this world. So Samuel is being protected by God. So Samuel did what the Lord said and went to Bethlehem. And the elders of the town trembled at his coming and said, Do you come peaceably? There's a good reason for this question, I am sure. Because what's the last thing you've heard about Samuel that probably got around? Well, uh, he prophesied the end of the reign of Saul, scolded him for his disobedience, and hacked King Agag into pieces in front of him. 
tends to leave an impression, I would think. I would think that such information uh, would cost somebody um, who uh, encounters this individual after that to ask the question, do you come in peace? Because I want to know, do you come in peace? Or are you coming to bring the same kind of judgment from the Lord? So the elders are scared. They're trembling. They're terrified. They're terrified of the messenger of the Lord who obeys God's commands, whatever the cost. And Samuel gratefully, thankfully, replies that he comes peaceably. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Sanctify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice as well. So we see here what is initially an encounter of fear, of angst, of anxiety. We see what has quickly turned around to become an invitation. An invitation to sacrifice and to worship to the Lord. And then to sit in on something truly bigger than they're expecting. Isn't that the Christian life? Isn't that how Christian life starts? Isn't that how your Christian life started? It began with an encounter that was terrifying. Because by the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, I see how sinful I am. I see how messed up I truly am. And I see that it goes far deeper than just what I do, what I say, or even what I think. It goes down to the very pit of my person. I am full of sin. I am sinful. And the messenger of God is telling me about the holiness and the glory of the one true living God. And that's terrifying. We see this even in Peter's encounter with the risen Christ, where Peter, uh, you know, they've been out all night fishing. They have a cod thing. And they come in all dejected and downcast. And Christ tells them to go back out and fish on the right side, like that never occurred to them. So they do. And they haul in so many fish that they had to bring in other boats to help them bring in the whole haul. The nets are ripping under the weight of these fish that they've caught. Enough to set them up for a good long while. And what's Peter's response? Turns around, falls flat on his face, and he says, not depart from me. He was face to face with the glory of God in his mercy and kindness. And he was terrified. 
That's how the Christian life starts. We come face to face with the Lord's glory. Even though it's in his mercy and his kindness, it's terrifying. It causes us to tremble, to shake with fear. But instead of the Lord coming to bring judgment, he's instead inviting us. Inviting us to the sacrifice of his son. Inviting us to the sacrifice of the one true lamb. The ultimate offering. He's inviting us in to participate in this most glorious, best act of worship that has ever taken place on the history of this planet. But what we're being invited to is something above and beyond, far greater than anything we could even imagine. Because he's not just the sacrifice. He's not just the sacrifice and the sacrificer. He's the king. We're being invited to the anointing of the king. Now that is something to fall on our faces in worship and awe for. Just as these elders were being invited to something that they thought was one thing but was so much more so too do we. Verse 5 closes, Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. And there's a little bit of a, I think, a dichotomy being set up here. We see first where Samuel instructs the elders to sanctify or consecrate themselves. Samuel sanctifies, consecrates the house of Jesse. We're seeing here where, where whereas these other elders are preparing themselves for worship, God is subtly exclaiming, and let me show you who I have prepared to take this responsibility. So it was when they came that he, Samuel, looked at Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. So Jesse's first son comes out. And Samuel's immediate response This is the guy, right? This is it. Clearly, this is the guy. No doubt about it. But there's a problem. What's he doing? Now keep in mind, Samuel, who previously in the book had been called a seer, um, which was an old word for a prophet, he is seeing only in the, in the realm, the dimension of the physical. He's seeing only one thing. He's looking at the outward appearance. He's doing the same thing that the people did with Saul. So we want a king who looks like this. And so Samuel is making the same mistake. He's looking at somebody who says, that guy, he looks kingly. Must be him. 
But God's response. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at his physical stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God is saying quite a lot in that passage. He's saying, Samuel, you've fallen victim to the same trap that the Israelites have fallen in. He's saying, Samuel, you have fallen victim to the same, the same pit. You have fallen into the same trap that the Israelites have fallen into. You're looking at only the man's appearance. You're looking at only the man on the outside. But that's not what I'm looking at. God is saying, I'm looking at his heart. I'm looking at the kind of, not just the kind of man that he is, the kind of man I have made him to be. So Samuel here gets a refresher course in seeing. We often need that refresher course, don't we? We often need to be reminded of the simple truth that things aren't always as they appear and the things that look the best oftentimes can be the worst for us. Oftentimes can be the worst for everybody involved. Often it's those things that we think are surefire ways. Surefire plan. That's exactly, that's what we need. We just need a smoke machine. We just need more lights. We just need a guy up there in skinny jeans with a buzz side comb over hairdo who's going to say all the things that make us feel really good about ourselves. Then the people are going to come flooding in. Right? It's easy to laugh at that when it's something we know is obviously ridiculous. But how many things in your own life you're sure just by the way they look are what's right for you when in reality they're not. We want the easy path, right? We want the path of least resistance. We want the path that doesn't make us try too hard, doesn't make us do a lot, so we can get where we're going quickly and efficiently. But the problem with that, brother and sister, is what we learn about God and ourselves on the easy path isn't anything we couldn't have learned any other way. But what we learn about ourselves and about God when things get really hard, when things get really tough, when traveling uphill 
or when slogging through the mud. What we learn about God in those moments, on on those parts of the journey, they're worth so much more. We learn so much more about God and His provision and His sufficiency on your bad days than you will ever learn on your good days. It is on the good days where we often forget how much we need God. But it's on the bad days the bad weeks, the bad months, maybe even the bad years, or maybe you're going through a bad decade. It's in those times when everything else is stripped away and we have nothing left to lean on but Christ. That we are taught anew and afresh that that's all we need. God is saying, don't look at the appearance. Don't pay attention to how good looking he is. Don't pay attention to how tall he is. Don't pay attention to how easy you think this guy is going to make life for you as an Israel. Because if you're basing that on his appearance, just like with Saul, you're going to be disappointed. I'm looking at the heart, God says, and I'll tell you who's the right one. Verse 8, so Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. In verse 9, then Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, Neither has the Lord chosen this one. And thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. And Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen these. Now Samuel's, he's reached the end. It doesn't look like there are any more sons. So he wonders, what's going on? Have I come all this way for nothing? Have I risked my life going through Gibeah for no reason at all? Sometimes we get to a point in our journey where it seems like We get to the point in the journey where we think, seriously? Is that it? Have I come all this way for this? For nothing? So Samuel asks asks Jesse, are all the young men here? can't help but think that question probably didn't originate with Samuel. That question probably had a divine origin. Because I would have assumed 
well, these are all the boys, and none of them here, so he didn't choose any of these. But Samuel was inspired to ask, are these all the young men? Is, is that it? You're hiding anymore in the back back there? So Jesse says, there remains yet the youngest, and there he is, keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down till he comes here. Now this is a little sad for David, right? Like, he wasn't even invited to the sacrifice, to the party. Like, his dad completely overlooked him, left him out in the pasture, tending the flocks. And it isn't until he's asked a direct question. Are these all the young men? Are these all the sons you got? That almost has an afterthought. Oh, nope, there's... I got the youngest back here. He's looking after the animals. Samuel's response. Bring him in. And we won't sit down, which means we won't sit to eat of the feast until he is here with us. So he sent and brought him in. Now he, David, was ruddy. The translation may say reddish. That's fine. Dude was tan. With bright eyes and good looking. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is the one. Sometimes when we get to that point in our journey, that seems like the end, and it's all been in vain. God shows us just how fruitful the journey truly was. And so, at a moment that seemed like there was a mistake made, all hope was lost, something not positive, in walks this young shepherd boy doing the job that not just nobody wanted to do, but was kind of a punishment. It made you unclean. In walks in this shepherd boy. And though the Bible describes his outward appearance correctly, we know from verse 7 that that's not the reason why God says anoint him. He's the one. God had prepared this young boy to receive the anointing of the kingship of Israel. To be God's king, not the people's king. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. I have no idea who in the in this room knew what was going on other than Samuel and the Lord. I have no clue. Sometimes God calls us to bear witness to things that that are so much more magnificent than we could ever possibly imagine. That have so much more meaning packed in by him than we could fathom. 
I have the sense that that's what's going on here with these elders and possibly with even David's brothers. They just know that David's being anointed for something. Maybe not. Maybe they don't know it's for the kingship, but he's being anointed for something. And this preferential treatment, this showing that the lastborn is the firstborn, is a common motif that runs throughout Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament. We see many who came second who received blessing over their older siblings. And we see that here again is that it's not by appearance, it's not by custom, it's not by order of succession or chronology. It's according to God's will. And so sometimes we're expecting something. And we're expecting it a certain way. We're expecting it to come about in this order. And God just totally blows us out of the water with how he does it. When he does it using the least of these. When he does it using someone we maybe we never would expect it. Maybe it's you. Maybe you see something wrong. Maybe you see a hole in your community, in your church, and maybe you think, well, I can bring it up, but God's, God's got somebody else to take care of it. Maybe God has you to take care of it. Maybe that's why he showed you. Now, make no mistake, God will do what God will do. And God will use the means he has chosen to use. But we're so quick to pass the buck and to make it somebody else's problem. When God showed you, revealed the problem to you, to make it your problem. And because maybe, maybe he's prepared you to be the person to fill that hole. Maybe he's prepared you to receive the anointing of that particular situation. I'm not saying God's calling anybody here to be king. That'd be great, but probably not. But I am saying that we all have our own lives, our own communities, our own circles, our own congregational churches for a reason. God has not put us in a church, in a community to simply to simply sit in a chair and keep it warm. He's put us there for us to serve. David had been called to serve. And after doing this, Samuel arose and went back to Ramah. That's it. God had something for him to do. He came. He did it. He went back home. <coughs> Sometimes that's what it's like. Sometimes God has you there for a long time. Like Paul. Laboring with some of his church plants for years before moving on. But brother and sister, trust the leading of God in his word and by his spirit. 
and he will take you where he wants you. He will lead you where you're supposed to go. Though the journey might be hard, it might not even be just hard. Sometimes it might seem downright impossible. Lean on Christ. When the road gets hard, look to Christ. And he will continue to lead you and he will get you where he wants you. And he will keep you there as long as he wants you there. And he will take you away when the journey's over, when your time is done. We are here for such a short time. We make the most of it. Not by wallowing in the sorrow and the grief of what might have been, but by getting up, leaning on Christ, and doing what he has called us to do. When he's finished with you, he'll let you know. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again so much for this blessed opportunity to open your word and to read what you have for your people. God, your word is precious. God, it is more precious than gold and silver. More precious than diamonds and rubies. Lord, it is more precious than oxygen. May your word be our breath of life so that we breathe it in and we breathe it out to those around us be with us as we go on the journeys you have for us may we walk together for as long as you have appointed and may we depart one another only on the terms you have set before us in Christ's name we pray. Amen.